Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you are all doing well and excited as we get closer and closer to our celebration of Christmas just over a week away. It's a joy, a great pleasure to be with you all again as we continue to explore the titles of our King out of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. As we are only a week away at this point in time, I trust everyone has at least to a certain extent gotten caught up in the chaos that is Christmas season. Um, my family braved uh, the outdoors yesterday as we joined the crowds, the masses at stores like Target and whatnot, and attempt to, to purchase the last few things. And every year it's the same ordeal where you know it's going to be busy, and so you ready yourself, but nothing can prepare you for the madness and the frustration of the masses that fill the stores this time of year. As people are desperately trying to make those last few purchases, as people are desperately trying to get ready to ensure the best possible few hours they can muster come Christmas morning. In the midst of getting through this chaotic season, it is easy for many of us to grow a little cynical and voice perhaps one or two criticisms of the world around us. It's easy to assume that the people around us are completely missing the point of Christmas, so we see the purchases being made as a pure sign of consumerism, of commercialism, and it's easy as Christians to to bemoan these traditions and assume there's nothing but sin being explored and expressed in our traditions. But of course, as we observe these things, if we take a little closer look, even in the midst of the chaos that really characterized this time of year, the traditions that countless people around us are belaboring to enjoy actually reveal something far more complex, far more complicated than just consumerism. There's far much more going on than just pure materialistic greed. If you just consider what is driving people this time of year, it's beautiful, it's precious, it's unique, for at this time of year, more so than any other holiday, there are certain desires of humanity that that come to the surface. And it comes out not just in how much money people spend, although that certainly is part of it, but it comes out in just about every other tradition we can observe. Just consider, for instance, the type of movies that people watch this this time of year. Whether you're dealing with classics like It's a Wonderful Life, or movies a little bit closer to my own time like Home Alone from my childhood, or even those Hallmark movies that a number of people love so very dearly. Regardless of what movie you choose, you see the same themes, the same patterns being picked up, don't you? These movies are popular not because they're pushing materialism, far from it. If anything, all these movies share this same calling to remind yourselves, to remember that Christmas is not about stuff. It's about people. It's about this longing for family, this longing to belong. Even in those Hallmark movies, it's, it's a longing for love, a longing to escape the rat race. And, and as such, in all these things, you see, again, a message that is no doubt very surprising to perhaps outside observers. For again, at first glance, Christmas would appear to many to be nothing more than materialism. Yet, as we dig a deep, bit deeper, we see again these undertones of longing, of desire, this, this wanting to be home, to be at rest. And ultimately, that, that is what people are after this time of year recapture some sense of nostalgia, to experience, even if just for a few moments, peace and calm. To many people, that desire can seem a bit childish, even misguided, and seem an impossible thing to hope for. 
Yet as we come back to Isaiah chapter 9, we see that as improbable, as impossible as, as those hopes might seem, that it's those hopes that are actually fulfilled in Christmas. For in the promise of the coming king, Isaiah goes exponentially further than what any single person could have ever hoped to gain. For he speaks of a coming king that, that is beyond just a king. He's beyond wise. He's beyond successful. He's beyond powerful. He is infinitely more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And it is only when we understand the depth and complexities of that king that we can understand why people ought to celebrate as much as they should. Why it is okay to pick up all these traditions and make great noise and make a big deal out of this year because this really is the most wonderful time. And so as we explore the text today in Isaiah 9... As we continue to explore the titles, namely this title of Eternal Father, it is my hope that we can see again what makes this coming king so precious and why this king today can still hold our deepest desires and fulfill our greatest hopes. With that being said, let me read our text and open our time in prayer. Again, the text we are looking at is Isaiah chapter 9. We pick it up in verse 1 and read through verse Six or somewhere along there. They're speaking to a people in the midst of great darkness. Isaiah, the prophet, wrote again, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Who, those who live in dark land, the light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult. And cloak rolled in blood will be used for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the precious word of God. Let us open our time in prayer. Father in heaven, God, as we continue to explore this text in Isaiah 9, we continue to explore words that are no doubt very familiar to so many of us in here this morning. And because of the familiarity, it is easy for us to miss just how shocking and how impossibly beautiful this promise is. But God, I pray this morning you might remove that familiarity that we might read this promise with new eyes, that we might appreciate it in the way that only your people can fully appreciate it. God, as we explore in particular this call, this, this name of eternal Father, might we be struck with a proper sense of awe, an awe over how grand you are, God. Might we be awed by your transcendence, God. Yet in the midst of that awe, might we not miss also the sweet intimacy that is also promised. For while you are transcendent, while you are eternal, you are also Father to us. And so might we walk away with a greater appreciation of that this morning. 
Might you remove all distractions from our minds today, God. Might you cause us to become transfixed on the glory that is promised here in Isaiah 9. As always, my prayers for those individuals who do not yet know you, God. Might you open up their eyes to their need of you. Might you awaken in them a desire that they perhaps never fully understood until this moment. And might you bring them to a saving faith in your son, Jesus Christ, our eternal king, the one who loves us with a fatherly love. It is in his name we come before you, and it is by his name we're able to pray these things. Amen. Well, as we look at our text today, again, we are picking it up with a specific look at this title of Eternal Father, a title that is very different from the previous titles we've explored in Isaiah 9. For if you've been with us, you've seen already those first few titles given regarding this child who will be born. As we've already seen, this child who would be king is called Wonderful Counselor, a concept that speaks of the qualifications to rule, the idea of a, a king offering counsel to the nation. Thus, the coming king is qualified to provide that sort of wisdom. We saw how that was explored in Christ, how that is perfectly on display. Following this call of Wonderful Counselor, we read last week that he's also Mighty God that speaks to his power to reign. A power that no doubt would have been essential and, and hoping in, in light of, of the dangerous threats that are coming upon the people of God. For remember, they find themselves in a very dark moment in history. There is that great threat of the Assyrian Empire bearing down on them. And if you are living in that day and age, then amongst God's people, your concern isn't just over some financial stress. It's not simply over some health concerns. It's over whether or not you're going to live. Whether or not this king is going to come through and brutally slaughter you and all your loved ones. That's the threat. In light of that threat, then you understand why this coming king needed to be marked by counsel, by wisdom. Why this coming king needed power to rule, power to protect. What you perhaps would not expect, however, is this third title of eternal father. For it is here that the prophet Isaiah picks up language that is perhaps a bit different than everything else before. And it's language that doesn't just speak to the effect of a king's ability to rule, but it speaks to the king's relationship with his people. A relationship that, as we see, brings about not just prosperity, but it brings about this internal calm, this internal comfort. As we explore it, we break it down by these two words of eternal and Father, and we begin with that first, eternality, and consider why this would be so precious. Again, reading verse 6, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. It is here that we seek to find calm. Now, as we begin discussing this concept of a king being eternal, it's important to appreciate just how shocking this language would have been to the original audience. This idea that the coming king could be said to be eternal. I mean, immediately there is, of course, some beauty in that, for it speaks to this improbable hope, this desire amongst all people to find consistency in a rule. You see that consistency wished for. If you go back all the way to 1 Samuel 8, where you see the people of God's first request for a king. There in 1 Samuel 8, you find this, this famous scene in which Samuel is coming to his old age and, and, close, and nearing his own time of death. Samuel, which was a godly judge, someone the people trusted, yet who was leaving behind sons who were far from that. 
And so in response to the fear of what his sons would bring about, in part, we read this request in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Beginning in verse 4, it says, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us, to judge us like all the nations. Later on, amongst those same people, you have this request in verse 19, where the people refuse to listen to Samuel, something we'll see in a moment. Instead, they say, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We see there's a lot lot of layers in this request for a king amongst God's people. They want to be like the other nations, which is wrong, of course. But they also want to ensure some some stability, some consistency, and they know that Samuel's sons are not going to provide that consistency. And so even if their request may be fallen, it may be mixed in their motives, we can appreciate that desire, that desire to to be confident in the coming leadership, to know that after the death, after the fall of one good leader, that there will not be chaos, but rather there will be ongoing prosperity. That is something that people continually hoped for, this consistent king. Israelites certainly were not unique in that desire. This is the desire of every nation, of every people group, the desire to to see consistent peace and rule. You can hear it in that old request that I believe finds its origins in France. The king is dead, long live the king. This cry that that communicated in the absence of a previous leader, the hope, the, the wish that his peace that he instilled would continue on into the next ruler, into the next dominion. We understand even our own culture today, while we are not ruled by a king, we still long for consistency. We still hope that in the midst of a good president, that that he will be able to make an impact that will last far longer than his own life. And so we speak of that need, we speak of that hope. And of course, even outside of politics, we all understand this natural desire for peace, for calm, for stability. It's something Every person from the youngest of age desires, for even children want some sort of schedule, even children long for stability in their home. We we are born with this innate desire. And and as natural as that desire might seem, it is also quite strange, isn't it? For while Israel hoped for consistency, while we hope for consistency, we understand life gives us anything but reliable consistency. Consistency. Our world, our life, is horribly unpredictable. And while the people hope for great kings, kings like David, we understand that experientially they got more often than not a Saul. And so they were left with this sense of hesitancy, this this sense of of wonder and, and frustration. And we certainly understand it as well. Even in the midst of this Christmas season, every single person experienced this and and that feeling of of anxiety. We hope we're doing all the right things to ensure a happy Christmas, but we never can be too sure. And even if we are sure, even if Christmas goes well, well, we understand that Christmas comes to an end, life goes on, and it's back to just frustration, disappointment. That's the consistency we come to know. And yet every season, every year, we come to this Christmas season and we sing songs that speak of peace, that speak of long-lasting rule. We sing and we hope for things that, quite frankly, are completely foreign to the world's history. 
And as foolish as that might sound to those outside of Scripture, we see as we come back into the text of Isaiah that there's a reason for that hope. For as improbable as our hope for perfect consistency is, there is this seemingly impossible promise given regarding this coming king, isn't it? For this coming king, we are told, is not just wise, he is not just mighty, he is eternal father. But it's here again, we need to take a step back and appreciate how shocking that word eternal would be, not just because it defies our own experiences, but because in the Old Testament world, eternal really could only be applied to one figure. That one figure, of course, being God. For scripture is very clear that Yahweh, God alone, is everlasting. It is this point that the entire narrative of the Bible opens up, isn't it? For what do we read in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created. We understand that speaks to his role as creator, but it also speaks to this idea that he is eternal. That before creation was, God is. It's a point made clear in Genesis. It's a point that's continued to be highlighted in other passages. Consider the language of Psalm 90. In Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 through 2, we read these words from Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth of the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before a single mountain was formed, before God said, let there be light, before the Spirit hovered over the darkness, God is there. No one else, no matter, no other organic specimen, just God. It's a vitally important point for it shows that God exists above creation. Nothing in the created order could ever threaten his rule. Nothing could ever supplant his authority. For God alone is eternal. But it's not just that God exists before creation. Scripture even speaks in a way that is perhaps far more difficult for us to understand. He exists outside of time itself. This is a point that the author, that is the prophet Isaiah, highlights a few times when speaking of the supremacy of Yahweh. You can turn over, for instance, to Isaiah 46 and see the prophet make this point very clear in verses 9 through 10, or 8 through 10, I should say. In this passage, again, God is speaking through the prophet and establishing what makes him better than every other so-called God, what makes him stronger than every other so-called ruler. Speaking through the prophet, God says this, beginning in verse 8 of Isaiah 46, Remember this, be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, there is none other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God here challenges every other worldview, every other God, and and the thing that establishes his supremacy is this idea that he's eternal. That he's not simply unlimited by creation, but time itself in no way affects God, for God stands above it all. This concept is impossible for us to fully comprehend, for we are so limited by our time. 
We can only see that which is directly in front of us, that which is directly past us already. We cannot imagine the idea of observing all of human history in one single moment, yet that is God, for he is eternal. He is before creation. He is outside of time, and it is because of this, as the prophet speaks there, that he is over all things. God alone is eternal. God alone is everlasting. One can only imagine what that sort of concept would look like or what benefit that would bring when this eternality is applied to a king, applied to a ruler. For if you were eternal, certainly no one could, could go against your wisdom. If you were eternal, certainly no one could, could come up against your might for your will, your rule, your plan is certain. That is the promise Isaiah makes, but of course... And this promise, it would naturally cause the original hearer to to question it, would it not? For as great as that might sound, how on earth were they supposed to, to get a king that's eternal in the way that God alone is eternal? Who could possibly fulfill this promise to where it's not simply their impact, but but themselves as an individual? Certainly throughout the generations, there would have been great kings the people of God experienced, great rulers, great leaders, with great wisdom. But regardless of how great they are, what happens to every single one of them? They die. They're buried. They're gone. Regardless of how great of a job they did, over time, their impact dies away. Over time, their impact fades Israelites understood that. We understand that. That is simply our experience. And so we ask, like the original audience asked, who then could Isaiah possibly be promising? Where could there possibly be this level of provision for a king that is eternal? Well, of course, we who are familiar with this story already know exactly where that miraculous provision comes, don't we? For it comes in Christ. That figure of whom John in his gospel writes this in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. John wrote, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Jumping ahead to verse 14, we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yet again, here's a passage that is so familiar to many of us that we miss how astonishing it is to read. For what is John saying here in this language of in the beginning, what is John saying here as he references creation? Well, it's quite clear, isn't it? He's taking the language of Genesis that language, as we mentioned, that is only applied to an eternal God, and he's applying it to Christ. He's saying this figure, this son, he is eternal. No beginning, no end, outside of time itself, in the way that God and God alone is. John, of course, is not simply coming up with this idea, for Jesus Christ himself proclaims this of himself. In that same gospel, in John chapter 8, in fact, if you would turn there, 
John chapter 8, in the midst of having a debate with Jewish leaders, Jesus makes the same shocking claim of his own eternality. For in John chapter 8, in the midst of the, one of the many discussions he's having with these leaders, we read of this debate having to do with where Jesus finds his power. Beginning in verse 52 of John 8, we pick it up there and read, The Jews said to him, We know you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets also. And yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. Prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? The question here is natural. It's a good question to ask, for they understand God alone is eternal. Abraham was a great man. He died. Prophets, great. They died. So how on earth can you possibly speak of this ability to never taste death? In verse 54, we pick it up and read, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. You've not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to his temple. Why were they so angered that they would seek to kill Jesus? Well, their anger, of course, is found in that response of Jesus in verse 58. For there he says, before Abraham existed, I am. Meaning, referencing the language of Yahweh back in the book of Exodus. Where God, again, explains himself in terms of his eternality, of the fact that he's everlasting. It's what makes him different from everything else in creation. Jesus here is, is proclaiming equality with the Father. Jesus himself is proclaiming that he is eternal, everlasting. And following this proclamation, we see time and time again New Testament authors highlighting and, and honing in on this eternality of Jesus, the fact that he is everlasting, the fact that he as the author of Hebrews says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The reason why we know Jesus is the same yesterday and today forever is because he's eternal, he's everlasting. His promises cannot change. His character will not change. The apostle Paul picks up on the same idea in the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, it speaks to this transcendence of Christ. This eternality of Christ, the idea that he has no beginning, he has no end, he is therefore then the clear fulfillment of what Isaiah promised. A promise that at first glance must have sounded symbolic, must have seemed poetic, and yet is quite literal. This king was to be eternal. This king was to be everlasting. This king was to be outside of time, outside of creation. Therefore, this king can be forever trusted. The reality of that eternality is, is so key, is so important. 
You can understand how beautiful it must have been in the ancient world to, to think that they could have a king that would never die. A king whose wisdom would never cease for he would continue on forever. A king that could be trusted and followed throughout centuries and generations. And while we do not live under the same political rule, of course, we still understand how precious this is to us. For in the midst of, of our world's chaos, where it seems as if nothing is consistent, where it seems as if no one is a man or woman of their word, we have Jesus, who is the same yesterday, who is the same today, who is the same forevermore. Jesus, who is the eternal king, for he is God incarnate. It is because of this that we can trust the gospel, that we can trust the promise of eternal life. Speaking on that reality, great theologian Stephen Charnock on his writings of the eternality of God says this, the gospel is not preached by the command of a new or temporary God, but of God that was before all ages, by his son, the king, equally eternal. The great disappointment that every single person outside of Christianity faces is the disappointment of knowing that everything dies. Everything fades. That's the struggle of Christmas itself, isn't it? It's one of the reasons why Christmas is both a great joy but also a great moment of depression for so many people. For in the midst of the lights being put up, in the midst of the decorations being put up, it elicits this internal desire for beauty, for life. But as it does so, it also reminds us that it is so temporary, it is so fleeting. And so even as we put up those decorations, we do so knowing that amidst all that work in just a few short weeks, it's all going to come down. Because none of us want to be that one person in the neighborhood with lights up in February, right? It's got to come down. It's just a reality of life. Regardless of how good of a time you're having, regardless of how much you might love that person, that time's going to end. That person's going to die. And that is painful. So we can see the preciousness and the sense of calm that is meant to be inspired in the idea that at Christmas, and regarding this king, we celebrate someone who, who doesn't fade, who isn't put away, but who comes who loves, who serves, who saves, who still sits enthroned in heaven, who will be forever. It is the sweetest joy. And yet, having said that, as beautiful as the idea, as calming as it is to think that we serve an eternal king, the sweetness is not yet fully explored or appreciated from Isaiah 9. For Isaiah, again, is not just saying... That we're to be calm because our king is God eternal, is he? I mean, Isaiah could have said that. Isaiah could have said, calm down, people of God, for your coming king is wise, wonderful. Your king is mighty, he's powerful, he's going to rescue, great. And your king is eternal, he is God, he is judge, he is ruler. And all those things are true. And all those ideas could be applied to speak to, to Christ's qualifications to rule. But again, as we look at the text, it's not Christ's qualification that Isaiah is emphasizing. It's his relationship that he offers. And what makes this, this concept ultimately so beautiful, and as we see in our second point, so comforting, is that our king did not come simply to rule and to judge for all eternity. Our king came as an eternal Father. 
we read again, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. As obvious as it might be to desire a king who will rule in perpetuity, and it's perhaps harder to appreciate the desire for a king who will love you like a father. And indeed, when you read of the people's request for a king, it doesn't seem like they have any hope for that fatherly love. For again, if we look back at 1 Samuel, we see in chapter 8 that they speak nothing of the king's character, nothing of a king's relationship. They speak only of the ability of the king to rule, to fight their battles, to judge. That's their focus. That's their hope, and it seems that they are convinced that if they simply have this, this figure standing as the representative, offering judgments, offering military might, that that will be enough, that they will be provided for, and therefore they will find everything that they could ever possibly want. In that request, we of course see the immaturity of the Israelites on full display, don't we? They are like children who foolishly believe in their own sense of independence, who foolishly believe that they don't need their parents, just give me this, give me that, give me a few more rights, a few more abilities, and then I'll be fine. We all understand that, that illusion of independence. Every kid feels it. If you're a parent of a young one, you know how frustrating it is when suddenly they hit that moment where they insist that they're going to tie their shoes you don't think it's going to be annoying until you're waiting 20 minutes at the door, saying, please, just, just let me do it. And they say, no, I can do this. Every kid has this, this innate belief. It's misplaced, of course. But they assume it's true. And to a large extent, we never grow out of this. We assume we're fine on our own. You look at so many of our cultural debates, and it, it all revolves around this, this belief in our own uh, abilities and our own personal wisdom that if people would just leave us alone, things would be so much better. We assume that if someone just provides with perhaps a little financial help once in a while, a little more freedoms once in a while, that, that everything is fine. For we assume again that our greatest lack is stuff. It's finances. It's, it's the ability to just get past this present trial. But if you look again at 1 Samuel 8, you see, very interestingly, the way that Samuel reveals the foolishness of this thinking. For to, to show them just how misguided their hope is, Samuel does not point to the idea that a king will not succeed militarily. He does not point to the idea that a king will never have any wisdom. He says this about the type of king they will inevitably experience. In 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 10, Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him for the king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among the horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed, of your vineyards. He will give to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men and your donkeys and use them for work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. And then you will cry out on that day. 
because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. It is interesting to see how personal Samuel is in, in painting this picture of, of suffering. For again, it's not what, what one might assume he would say, for he speaks again nothing of, of wisdom or success. He speaks of, of the personal loss that will come with his king. He tells them, you think you want this provision, but you don't understand. He will empty your home. He will take your sons and your daughters. He will use them as own servants, as his own slaves. He won't care about you. And it's in that lack of care that you see the real damning aspect of this request. And so Samuel encourages them to understand what it is they're requesting. They don't understand it. They don't see that their need is not just for a king. Their need is for a proper relationship with their creator. We, of course, understand this misguided notion today. In the midst of of so many debates as to what is wrong with our nation and so many debates over what's wrong with people, again, so oftentimes there's a complete lack of appreciation of of relationships, of, of loneliness. There's a complete lack of appreciation of the breakdown of the family structure. Again, this is so commonly cited in, in sociological studies where it's just this, this problem of fatherlessness oftentimes. And people assume that if we just give people more money and give people more opportunities, that will solve it. But, but what research shows time and time again is, no, they need, they need parents. They need a dad who will raise them, who will guide them, who will discipline them, who will provide for them. They need that relationship. We all need that relational connection. And it's in light of that need then that as we come back to Isaiah 9 and and we read this language of an eternal father, we we see that the prophet is bringing us back to that central concern, to that which is missing in our lives. And just as he did in speaking of the eternality of the king, Isaiah used this language that's intended to point us back to God. For throughout the Old Testament, again, while it's not as clear as his eternality, we do see this fatherly care of God on display You regularly read this language of how we are sons and daughters. It's family language, and that family language, it's pointing us back to our Father, back to our Creator. You read throughout the Psalms, and and you see these poetic images of the way that the psalmist depicts the way that our Heavenly Father, our Creator, provides for us. For in passages like, like Psalm 65, you read of how the Father clothes creation how he feeds the animals, how he grows it all up in the way, again, that, that a farmer tends to his fields, but even more so in the way, that a far, the, the way that a father tends to his kids, their needs. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, you see this, this fatherly imagery of the creator. And it's quite precious. But to be fair to the Israelites and to be fair to any reader of the Old Testament, It is easy to read that fatherly image and still have this image of of a distant father in the way that tragically so many people experience fatherhood in this broken world where there is a dad, but he's far away. And yeah, he sends the payments time and time again, but that's kind of it. Because of our brokenness, because of how broken the, the system is, oftentimes people miss how beautiful that Old Testament imagery is as well. And so it's only... It's only when you push ahead beyond the Old Testament, when you see Christ, that that you're given a picture of the fatherhood of God in full color, in all its beauty. And 
In saying that, of course, we're not saying that Jesus is the Father. Let me be clear on that. That's, that's a heresy. We're simply saying that Jesus perfectly represents the Father. He is a perfect reflection of the Father's fatherly love. We read this already to a certain extent in Colossians, but again, consider what Jesus says regarding that connection to the Father. In John 14, from John 14, Jesus speaking of himself says this, in verses 8 through 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? It's important for us to understand that based off what Jesus is saying here, when we observe his character, when we see his teaching, we see this fatherly care of a king. You hear it very clearly, of course, in his teaching. Time does not permit us, but we could read through various parables when Jesus compares the love of God to a loving and gracious father. You think of the prodigal son, perhaps most famously, that picture of a father running out to greet the son that, that has denied him, the son that has cheated him, the son that has shamed the family. It is a picture of God's fatherly love. Read other images used as well, but, but while the fatherly love of Christ is on display in that character, in that teaching, I believe it, it is in the personal care that Jesus gives throughout his ministry in which we really see that fatherly care on display, in which we understand why the promise of Isaiah is so impossibly beautiful. One of my favorite examples of this fatherly care is is seen in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5. It's a passage that, that comes to my mind so frequently when I'm reminded of how fallen I am, when I'm reminded how precious God's grace is. For Mark chapter 5, you have this event occur. When, when Jesus' help is, is sought after by another dad who is begging Jesus to come and heal his little daughter who is on the verge of death. And so Jesus begins making his way to this little girl in Mark 5. But on his way, on his way, Jesus is told that the little girl is dead or, or as he arrives already, it is declared that this girl is dead. Yet Jesus persists. And so we pick up this story in verse 35 of Mark 5. We read, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter's died. Why trouble this teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up, began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded, and he gave strict orders that no one should know about this. But he said that she should be given something to eat. It is such a precious picture and one that one would never anticipate the king of all creation. For why would the king of all creation, with the salvation of humanity on his will and his plan, why would he waste his time with some kid? 
She's dead, Jesus. There's bigger fish to fry here, Jesus. Let's move forward. Yet, we see this king press forward. And as he comes into the house, again, we see this precious imagery. Even the language used to awaken this girl is the language many commentators compare to to how a father would wake his girl up from a nap. It is tender, it is sweet, it is intimate, it is fatherly. And as such, it's a picture not just how Jesus heals this girl, but of course it's intended to be a picture of how Jesus heals all of us. It's a picture of how we are all awakened from our spiritual sleep in conversion. It's a picture of the fact that our king does not come and simply bark out orders. He comes to lovingly make us sons and daughters. To awaken us from our spiritual slumber, to take us by the hand, to provide sustenance for us, and to welcome us into his eternal home. This is an image that defies all expectations. And an image that many people, I think, are are hesitant to even consider, for it just seems too good to be true. For it is infinitely greater than any love, any care we could ever possibly experience in this life, regardless of how great of a father you have on this earth. And if you do, praise God. But every fallen father falls so short of the standard of a father who is eternally God, who is therefore free of all sin, free of all selfishness, but as kind, as gentle, as wise, and a father who will never leave us. And that again is the precious picture here, isn't it? It is the comfort, not just of a father, but a father eternal speaking to this beautiful concept, Charles Spurgeon says this, there is no unfathering Christ, and there is no unchilding us. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust him, and he never does at any moment cease to be a father to any one of these. This day you may be much depressed in spirit, full of doubts and fears, but a true father never ceases. If he be a father to exercise his kindness to a child, nor does Jesus cease to love and pity you. He will help you. Go to him, and you will find that loving father to be just as tender as he was in the days of his flesh. Here is why the king is so great. Both because he is infinitely wise, and yes, because he is qualified to reign and rule, but also because he comes to you and me as a father who cares for us, who comforts us, who takes us by the hand and takes us out of the darkness, who will never leave us nor forsake us, who wipes all of our sins away, and who promises to come again soon. This was the king that was promised to Israel. This is the king who came at Christmas. This is the king who we still celebrate today. And it is because of this king that Christmas is so significant. It's because of this king and his character that you see these internal desires come to the surface of so many people, even absolute pagans. They come to this time of year and they long for it. They long for peace. They long for comfort. They long for calm because they know things aren't the way they, they, they should be. What they do not see is that their desires are by no means childish. 
They're the desires God has placed within us, and they're the desires that can be fulfilled only in this eternal king. And so as we close today and if we look ahead to the coming week, as we prepare to celebrate his birth, my prayer for everyone in here is that we might walk away again with, with a greater appreciation of this king. For those of you who do not yet know Christ, those of you who are so desperately trying to seek calm in this world, those of you who are desperately trying to seek that, that sense of home, that, that sense of comfort, please know that you can find it, that it is offered to you, but it's offered only in Christ. And so my prayer, unbeliever, is that you might turn to Jesus Christ in faith, that you might place your trust in him, and that you might experience the precious wonder of being brought into his family. You do this simply by repenting of your sins, placing your faith in what he's done, and as always, if you have questions, ask me afterwards in the lobby. I'm happy to help. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a reminder of why we should celebrate, of why it can be so much fun to put up the trees, to put up the lights, to sing the songs, to join in with the celebration, not because we, we are just like everyone else, but because we understand how precious the imagery is. We as believers should make a bigger deal of the Christmas season than any unbeliever. And so let us make a huge deal of it this week. And as we do so, as we observe those around us, let us again remember humanity's greatest need. Let us look upon the lost world around us and understand they are not doing what they do this week out of pure materialistic greed. They're doing so because they are lonely and they are longing for hope. And so let us, knowing that, rejoice in the provision God's given us. Let us celebrate and experience the peace and calm that come in Christ. Let us celebrate the comfort that we have in him. And let us, with grace and mercy, invite those around us to experience the same joy. For it is then and only then that Christmas really can live up to all its expectations, that all those internal longings are fulfilled, and that our hope, again, is transfixed, not simply by what has happened, but what we know will continue to happen as we look ahead to our eternal King's return. With that being said, let us close in prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for this promise. Indeed, it defies all expectations, for no human ruler could ever possibly fulfill these names. No father could possibly love in the way you love us through your son. Yet in Christ, we have all these things provided. As always, I pray for those unbelievers who are here, God. Save them from their sin. Cause them to see that their greatest need is fulfilled in you and your son. For our brothers and sisters in Christ, might this week be a week of celebration, even for those who are walking through dark times, God. Might they see the light of your son. And might they find, even in the midst of their pain, reason to rejoice. For while this world may change, while this world may be filled with pain and sorrow, we are saved by an eternal father. We're saved by an eternal king. And we are loved forever because of that. Jesus, we thank you. Be honored by our celebration in these coming days. Amen.